Father, um, our hearts are distracted and uh, tired and a little bit numb. And uh, sometimes, honestly, it's hard to know how these ancient words would bring life. Because honestly, Lord, they're confusing. But if you would be so pleased by your spirit, illumine these precious words that we might know you and that we might walk in obedience and love your world with great courage. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So several years ago, I, uh, I read a really interesting story. So an elderly woman in Florida, right, she's shopping at Walmart, and as uh, she's leaving the store with her bags in hand, she approaches her car, and she finds these four men in the act of, like, stealing her car. It was crazy. And, and so uh, with uncommon valor, she drops her bag, stands in, the, like, in front of the car so that the car can't get away, and she reaches in her purse and pulls out this gun, points it at the driver and says, I have a gun and I'm not afraid to use it. Like, so immediately, like these four men, I mean, they're scared. They get out of the car and they run off. And she's like, she did it, you know? And she's like kind of shaken from this experience. The adrenaline is starting to settle. She grabs her bags, sits in the, in the driver's seat, pulls out her keys, and she's shaking a little bit, right? I mean, what an event. And like her keys don't work. Y'all know what happened? Yeah. She was sitting in the wrong car. Her car was parked four places down. She had misidentified the car. She thought it was her car, but she was wrong. This created a terrible problem. Guys, identifying things correctly is a really big deal a really big deal. If Jesus were to like walk into Denver Prez, would we uh, recognize him? Would we identify him correctly? Because he wouldn't be wearing a toga and sandals, team. Could we identify him correctly? Identifying him correctly is like the main goal of this opening portion of Hebrews that we're jumping right into. So theologians call this opening section the exordium. Now that's a fancy word, but the exordium is, this, is an opening portion of a sermon where the speaker prepares his listeners and then describes the purpose of the discourse, the exordium. So this opening section that we're going to study this morning, if you'll remember, we said that Hebrews is a sermon. So preaching a sermon on a sermon, it's a little bit meta, right? Uh, we're going to see this, see this, and this opening purpose is to help us understand and to know God through Jesus Christ, to identify him correctly. And so here's the thing is the original audience, this is pastors working with, he, they didn't have a clear understanding of Jesus, right? Their, their vision of Jesus was uh, pedestrian. It was ordinary. And so Hebrews, the sermon was written for Christian communities, if you'll remember the context, who were considering leaving Christianity to hide within Judaism where they wouldn't take so much heat for their faith, 
right? Because they were experiencing intense like social pressures and aggression. And these pressures began to mount and they began to populate their imagination with doubts so that they would feel good about walking away from Jesus and thus the heat. And so they had to ask themselves, was Jesus vitally important? Like, I know he's important, but is he vitally important? Or, they would ask, could they still get God without Jesus? Understanding the situation, the the pastor, the preacher, he lays out this vision of Jesus as a cosmic in scope. It's supreme over all things, and it is with beauty that has no parallel. And so the, the, the pastor, the preacher knows that, that if, this, if this audience could just be enchanted by Jesus, then they would be less likely to turn away from Jesus in pain and to turn towards him in worship. And so these verses, this opening section is meant to bring them and to bring us to our knees in worship. And, and let me just, while I'm at it, let me just explain why this is like so relevant for like for us today as modern Christians. So sociologists will tell you that over the past 70 years, there's actually been this shift away from atheism, believe it or not. I mean, there are actually very few pure atheists uh, because, you know, the, the scholars will tell you that philosophically it's a really difficult position to maintain, right? Both Christians and non-Christians would say that. But as a result, there's been the shift towards agnosticism, right? And so agnosticism, you guys, is this position that said God or the gods, though they may exist, we can't really know them with any kind of def- definitiveness, right? And so what this did by moving to agnosticism, it essentially gave people permission to act like atheists, but to maintain their intellectual integrity, you see. But in the last 20 years, with like, we're deep in postmodernism, or maybe even post-postmodernism, uh, there has been this resurgence of spirituality. People actually want to be spiritual. Now, to be sure, Christianity is less popular, but spirituality is like, stock is high on it right now, you see. And so what happens is there's more views about God than ever before. And some people will say, you know, God is kind of like a force, right? And so if God is a force, then you would know him by experiencing him, right? Maybe something like Luke Skywalker, and I don't know, something like that. Uh, some people say that God is an idea, And if he's an idea, then you know him through intellectual assent and by thinking, right? But Christianity, a lot of us, it says uh, something completely different. Christianity says that God is a person. A person. And how do we know people? It's through speaking, right? It's through words. Like, so for instance, I know I'm like, I'm like the new guy around here, but you can't know me by just absorbing my presence, right? You can't do that. It's not going to work. You have to interact with me. And my, my communication is like the means which you can know me. That's how, that's how anyone relates to anyone, you see. And so here's the question for us. How do we know God, right? And the answer, according to Hebrews this morning, is that through Jesus Christ, God is speaking. Like, you can really know him. I mean, can you get your heart around that? You can really know him. 
And so the, that's the burden of these initial verses. So here's what I'm going to do, note takers. In, in, the, in the following moments, what, what remains, I'm going to do two things to evaluate this passage. Two points. First, that God has spoken first to our ignorance through Jesus Christ. That's revelation. And then God has spoken to our sinfulness through Jesus Christ. That's redemption, right? So, yeah. All right. So let's go jump right in. God speaks to our ignorance through Jesus Christ. Revelation. So human beings perceive and interface with the world through our five senses, right? So we either like touch, smell, hear, taste, see things, right? It, 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 we can't know things that exist outside of our five senses. I mean, I know that M. Night Shyamalan did an awesome movie, Sixth Sense. That's not a real thing, though. Just heads up, right? It's good fiction. It's not a thing. Let's not be superstitious. So if indeed God exists outside of our five senses, how can we know him? And the answer is we cannot know him, right? We can guess about what we think he's like, but we can't know with certainty. We're, we're, we're confined to this dilemma of guesses, you see. To know God, he must tell us and reveal himself to us. That's the only way this thing's going to work. And so the author of, you know, this preacher understands this. And so he opens up his sermon with this remarkable eloquence. Look there right away in verse 1. This is how it begins. Verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And I just want to bring your attention to like four features of God as a speaker. And kind of look at the, notice the movement in these two verses. Having, God having spoken... He has, has spoken now. Y'all see that? Y'all see that? Having spoken in the past, he has spoken now. And then it says, in the past, now is in the final days. You see that in verse 1 and 2? In the final days. So just real quick, theology lesson. The final days is just talking about that period after the resurrection of Jesus and before his return. That whole, all of that's the final day. So we're all still in the final days. Heads up. All right. Then it also says, in the past, it was by the prophets, now... By the Son, do you see that? And then to the fathers is now to us. Are y'all seeing the shift in the first two verses? So that phrase right away in verse one, right away, it says in many ways. In the the Greek, the word is polutropos. So just geeking out with you Greek guys here a little bit. It just, the word means like piecemeal, right? This means that God spoke in fragmented piecemeal ways in the past. But that's not the case anymore. God has now fully and definitively spoken decisively through Jesus. And so if you want to know God, you must know him through Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have to guess what God is like. The dilemma has been solved. And so the author stresses this point, and he takes it even further. Notice the logic in verse 3 now. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right, so we're just like reading verse three, just chilling out. I guess it's good. Y'all, those, that verse would have been absolutely mind-blowing, shocking to the original audience, like gasping of air after verse three, because it's alarming. And let me tell you why. 
So within that sort of Jewish milieu, people like God in principle was highly revered. It was considered a complete heresy to attribute to a man the attributes of God. And yet this verse says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. I mean, think about that phrase, the sun. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Like, like, who, like what? Like, who talks like that? That sounds poetic. Like, it's, a, it's kind of a puzzle. But it, that, those words would have been really obvious to the original audience. And let me explain. So a little Old Testament primer. It's been a hot minute. So no one is in the Old Testament. No one is said to be able to look at God and continue to live, right? His, his glory is just too powerful. So like humans can't even look at the sun without their eyes frying out, right? How much more? How much more the glory of God? And so what God does is he veils his own glory. And you can think about like Moses, right? Leading the children of Israel outside of Egypt. So God led them through a pillar of smoke and, a, and fire. Are y'all tracking with me? And so that fire, as they're leaving like turns into this impassable, brilliant wall of fire so that when the Egyptian soldiers are kind of hot on their tail, they couldn't go any further. And it wasn't just that it was so hot, they literally just too brilliant for them. And then that same glory is said to go into Mount Sinai. Do y'all remember that? So Moses receiving the Ten Commandments and the glory of the Lord descended on the mountain and, and if anyone even touched the, the mountain, I mean, they would die. I mean, animals, anyone, nothing could even touch it, or they would just die. Like, Pfft. let me just read a, a real brief section of Exodus 19 to just remind you guys the language here. It's terrifying. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So theologians call this the Shekinah glory. Have y'all probably heard that right? The Shekinah glory. We just get that from the verb in the Hebrew that means to dwell. So this is like the place. This is like where the Lord is dwelling, his immediate presence. And so when the Lord was present and dwelled in this way, listen, it brought paralyzing fear because they knew what that meant. Like they're going to get snuffed out. Y'all see. The holiness of God is just too brilliant. You can't even look at it. It would just incinerate you. And yet, the author, chapter one, with like audacity, says that Jesus is the radiance of that same glory. Jesus is the final manifestation of God's glory, but in a way that you can relate to it and not Jesus, Jesus would make the same point. So John in his gospel like, describes this conversation that Jesus and Philip are having. So Philip's like, hey, Lord, show us the Father. Would you? Would you show us the Father? And it's enough for us. And Jesus is like, oh, hold up, Philip. Right? And he says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
That's what he says. I'm that exact representation. I'm the brilliance manifest. God has spoken to our ignorance and has revealed himself without destroying us through Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to guess. No more dilemma of guesses. But while I'm at this, can I, can I just, while I'm on this point, let me draw your attention to one more feature of this divine disclosure, this revelation. All right, so right, Jesus is God, and Jesus is human, and, and they're really uncomfortable with saying this human is God. If, so if that's hard for this original audience to understand, it gets a little worse. So the author gives us one more detail that's incredible he says, look there, verse 2, the author says that it's through Jesus whom he made the universe. And then in verse 3, it says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right? What? Like, you don't have to be a theologian just to understand the immensity of that proposition, you see. Like, what's going on here? Jesus is the creator and sustainer of every living thing and every non-living thing, the whole universe is in debt to Jesus. And, and listen, you guys, this, like, this isn't just like this aberration that you get in one little spot in the beginning of Hebrews. Like this is all over the New Testament, this idea. First Corinthians chapter eight, he says, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then John will say, all things were made through him. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Talking about Jesus and yet the world didn't know him. And then Colossians 1, Paul says, for by Jesus... All things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. We're talking about Jesus. Can I just like help, help you guys help us understand just the weightiness of what I'm saying here? I, it was like 15 years ago, I heard Tim Keller give this anecdote and it has stuck with me. So if you don't like this, take this up with Tim, all right? But basically he says, by the time it takes you to snap your finger, you have traveled 17 miles, right? Because the earth is sort of rotating on an axis and then we're rotating around the sun and because, the, the, our, uh, because our whole solar system is rotating within the Milky Way. So astrologists suggest that we're actually moving about 17 miles a second. Outer space is like really big, right? And the distance from the earth, get your brain around this. The distance from the earth to the sun is 92 million miles. Like we can't even get to the moon barely, right? 92 million miles. And if that distance, that 92 million miles, were represented by like one single sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of papers 70 feet high. Or, or if we measured the diameter of our galaxy, the Milky Way, it would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. And to be sure, our galaxy is just like one small galaxy and millions and billions of galaxies. I mean, we're just a speck of dust in this like vast universe. Here's why I mentioned this. The author 
is saying that Jesus holds this massive universe together with his little pinky finger. Like what follicle of hair, what nail clipping Jesus has more power contained in it than the entire universe, right? Do you get it? Y'all, if this is true, if this is true, is this the kind of person that you ask into your heart to be your personal assistant? It's extreme, isn't it? Like, listen to this quote from N.T. Wright. This is what he says. He says, how can you cope with the end of a world and the beginning of another one? How, how can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human and that fire has become flesh and that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity, he says, either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of our, the deepest reality in the world, or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. And most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. If this is true, and it is, if this is true, like you, you have to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, command me. Like, I belong to you. Right? Isn't, isn't that the only thing that would make any sense? Every part of your life has to be organ or organized around this Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews, he starts in this way because he, he's trying to help us understand that everything, right? Money. Tragedy, longings, dreams, family, sex, time, everything belongs under the authority of this Jesus, this creator and sustainer. This is a really dramatic disclosure of God. I mean, this is extreme, right? Most, most certainly it is extremely loving and extremely humble because God, Jesus, is loving and humble, but it also means that we must be extremely devoted, right? So there's this kind of like this temptation to label Jesus as like, right, a good person, a prophet, a wise teacher. Jesus just doesn't give us that option, right? He's either the God of the universe or a fool because good people just don't claim to be the author and perfecter and sustainer of the universe, right? That's, what, that's how crazy people talk. Do you want to know God? You must know Jesus. Like, there's, there's no other option. Now, listen, I, like, like I want to be sensitive. Like, I'm not... I'm not trying to be closed-minded. I'm not trying to be exclusive in any negative sense. I'm not asking, I'm not calling us to be obnoxious. Right? I don't hear what I'm not saying, but I do like desire that all of us would have a real relationship with the living God through Jesus. And any real relationship, any real relationship has exclusive features. Well, let me let me put it this way. If there is nothing if there's nothing about your God that you disagree with, if there's nothing about your God that just confuse you, then you're probably worshiping a God of your own making, right? That's just your own mythology. 
Because if he's real, he's got to be confusing, and he can't be in your making right. You know, some people will look at parts of the Bible, and they're like, I don't believe that God's like that. I think God is like this and so forth. And I get it, man. Like, I really do get it. I'm wrestling like anyone else. I get it. But we have to find a way to humble ourselves under the Bible so that we can have a real relationship. I want you to believe the Bible is, is God speaking to us and telling us what he is like. See, a relationship with God is like any relationship. To have a real relationship, you have to be willing to let the other person change you, right? So like me and this precious woman on the front row, like we've been married for almost 20 years now. There's certain things about Amanda that I'm just never going to change. Like a little bit of counseling, just she is who she is. I love it. It's hard. But because the relationship is real, because it's a real relationship, I allow those things to change me. Right, so if Amanda's a robot, I can make her exactly what I want. I could get a robot, but I can't have a relationship with it because you can't have a relationship with an appliance. You see? So let those like exclusive hard realities of Jesus change you. Like, don't get annoyed by them. I mean, wrestle, yes, of course, but then submit. Because that's evidence that you have a real relationship. All right. So that's our first point. It was kind of a, a longer one. Thank you for your patience. That's God speaks to our ignorance through Jesus' revelation. Let's now go to the home stretch to consider how God spoke to our sinfulness through Jesus. And this, this is his redemption. So it's really important to understand that Jesus didn't just come to teach us something, right? It's not just data transfer, right? It's not just like we're playing Jeopardy, like what is God? And then we answer, like, so that's not what's going on. Jesus actually came to save us, to do something. And so verse three, you'll see the text says that after Jesus had provided purification for sins, you see that? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so that language, that purification language, that's just borrowed language from the Old Testament sacrificial system. All right, so again, let me just do a little Cliff's Notes refresher on the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, so there's a, in the Old Testament, there's several ways a person could become ceremonially unclean or impure. Uh, this could happen by coming in contact with a dead body or getting a skin disease. There are some other ways as well. But if you were unclean, you had to undergo the ceremonial washing rituals. So in addition to that washing ritual, you, you were prohibited from worshiping in the temple for a time, for a set amount of time. So the unclean person had to keep a distance, a separation from the temple. Now this is a really big deal because the temple is where the, it was understood where the presence of the Lord dwelled, right? This is where the immediate presence was. And so you're separate from the presence of the Lord. Now for a Jew, all of this washing stuff and this time and this distance, for them, it wasn't weird. It was like rehearsing a drama. It's like a play. And this play expresses in an external way what is happening Spiritually speaking, a separation between a sinner and a holy God. 
And that person cannot have a relationship with God. So the defilement needs to be purified in order to restore the relationship, you see. And so the ceremony is a symbolic and dramatic expression of this inward reality. Now, there are also more uh, serious offenses that would make a person ceremonially impure and defiled. Murder, idolatry, sexual misconduct, there's a whole list. But in those cases, it required more than just time away and distance. It required one more thing. It required a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So the sacrifice would be like a bull or a goat or a lamb, then which was, would be slaughtered by the high priest. And then he, as this mediator between God and sinners, would take the blood, go into the temple and sprinkle it like everywhere. It's kind of a mess, right? And when that ceremonial, ceremony is complete, the impure person is, set, is considered pure or clean again. But the thing is, is this ceremony had to be repeated every year. And so the Old Testament symbolism helps us to understand this purification language that you're seeing in verse 3. So the author says that Jesus had been making purification for sins. Now, like, the grammar of the verb making right there is really important. So I'm going to do a little grammar for my daughter. She just, like, loves grammar. Um, But it's important to understand. So in the Greek... The word there is poiesomenos, which comes from the Greek word poieo, which just means to make. But the form, geeks out here, nerds, is this aorist participle. I know that means nothing to you, but here's what it means. The conjugation is used to describe this event, this action that took place over time. There's process, but it was definitively completed in the past, Okay. There's there's nothing touching into the present. It is done and over. So in this case, Jesus is not like continuing to make purification. And it doesn't say that Jesus will make purification. It says that he has made it. Like the action is complete. And here's the significance and why this matters. And for all time. Like, so, so, like, don't think to yourself, you know, pastor, I've, I've sinned a long time. Jesus found me, and he cleaned up the first half of my life. Like, don't do that. Like, that's not how you should think about this. This sacrifice was offered one time for all of our sins, even the ones we're going to commit that we don't even know about right after church, you see. Like, that too. The sacrifice was one time for all. And so the purification of your future sins was completed 2,000 years ago. And and, and the preacher is going to like say this again in chapter 10. And he says it so succinctly. He says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Right? So we're the bunch of jokers who keep messing up. We need to be sanctified, of course, but it was perfected already in the past. Y'all see that? Can I just illustrate how this works? Because I want you to feel the weightiness of what's going on here. Imagine a woman, because of her foolishness, has fallen into debt. She likes shopping a lot. I don't know. Let's just say. And uh, she has millions and millions of dollars of debt. And providentially, 
a mega trillionaire falls in love with her. And he says to her, I love you. Everything I have is yours. And they get married. And in that very moment, all of her millions of dollars of debt is paid off and canceled. And she's madly in love with her husband and her husband loves her and she is no longer a debtor. She's got no debt. But forever how much she loves her husband, and she does, she hasn't necessarily grown wise in all the ways that she should use and spend her money. And so on occasions, she makes foolish financial choices and it costs millions and millions of dollars. But no matter how foolish she is, She's never a debtor again because her financial foolishness can never exhaust the trillions of dollars of financial resources of her husband. Do y'all know what I'm talking about here? Do y'all know? Like, I'm not talking about a woman and a man. I'm talking about us and the Lord. Like, our foolishness can never exhaust the resources of forgiveness and grace that we have in Christ. Definitively, what Christ has done on our path. Now that, that's the implication of the Christian gospel. This theological truth is, you guys listen, it's one of the unique features of Christianity that sets us apart from all other beliefs and all other world religions. There's, there's no other religious system who has the audacity to talk like this, right? Like every religious system you know, includes a person that has, has to earn the right to be loved by their God or their gods or to get whatever they're getting, they have to earn it. And if that person becomes indebted by their own sin or their lack of adherence, they're the ones who have to pay for it. And, and, and it's repeated and repeated all the time. Why? Because people are a mess, right? Because we're humans, of course. And so what happens is that there's this anxiety that it trickles in, and our children can sense this, and people begin to wonder, am I good enough? I mean, is God happy with me? Should I, like, punish myself as a sacrifice for God? Like, that is a horrible way to live. And most people hating the guilt that they constantly are living with because that's what they think God is like, they ultimately opt are opting for it because we're, we're sending them the wrong message. We ourselves believe the wrong message. I would totally understand why people opt for agnosticism. If that's what God is like, who wants that? You see. See, the original audience, you guys, they didn't understand how Jesus loved them. Jesus didn't seem beautiful to them. Their view of Jesus was ordinary. They thought of him like any other Greek deity. And I mean, what I'm afraid of is that we think of Jesus today, modern people, like any other deity. He's ordinary. And we're still trying to make purification for our sins, just like any other religious system. We're no different. We just use different words, unfortunately. And so we're tempted ourselves to opt for agnosticism. 
just as the original audience wanted to opt for Judaism. But man, if you could just like get your brain around what the author, the pastor is doing in these first three verses, like it's scandalous, like it's scandalous. Jesus valiantly became our mediator to make sure that there's no space, like there's no space between us and God. He definitively purified us so that we can confidently enter into the presence of a holy God and more than that, have a personal relationship with him without getting blown up. Let me, um, let me land this plane. So let me conclude with just one more question that's really important for us to see in this text. In what way did Jesus perform the ceremony? It's just talking about this purification ceremony. In what way did Jesus do that? So a purification ritual requires a high priest and a sacrificial animal, right? So verse 3 anticipates Jesus being the true high priest. He is the mediator who went before God, and that's even going to fleshed out later in the sermon in, in Hebrews, on behalf of sinners. So Jesus goes on behalf of sinners, and he's the one who's like grabbing the blood and sprinkling it, right? He's the one pouring it out. He's the one doing the thing. But where is the sacrifice? Like, well, like what animal's blood would be good enough and powerful enough to, to cancel sin forever. You remember um, John the Baptist's first words? Like, the first time John the Baptist ever lays eyes on Jesus, he looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like, he's calling Jesus a sacrificial animal. Jesus is the sacrificial offering. And so at the cross, he's both the high priest, and the sacrifice. And his blood was sprinkled for our purification. And it never needs to be repeated definitively 2,000 years ago. Guys, are y'all seeing this? Like, do y'all see the uniqueness of Jesus? Like, like there's no one like Jesus. There's, there's no religion like Christianity. Do you understand See, Christianity is the only religion that says that God himself would be the sacrifice to purify and redeem sinners like us. Like, who does that? Like, God's saying, I'm going to do all the work, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to sprinkle blood all for you. And you did nothing to deserve this. The God who holds the universe in his hands is the same God who offers himself as an offering to make us pure and holy. Like, What? He looks at specks of dust and says, I got to have you. I'll do anything to have you. Don't misidentify Jesus. This really is who he is. God is speaking to you through Jesus. So our job is to hold this magnificent vision of Jesus and and with faith to believe that he is more real than anything you can see or touch. Bury this, Denver Prez, in your heart. Let it change you. Wrestle with it, but let it change you. Because, y'all, this, like, this is all we've got. This is all we've got when times get really hard and the walls start closing in on us and life's a little bit hard. This is the only thing that will keep us steady. Keep us faithful, dear Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, 
oh, I mean it when I say it, keep us faithful. We really, really, really need you. And Lord, I just, we're just sorry for when our imagination is so limited that we just think about the Savior as being so ordinary and pedestrian and, and we reduce them to bumper stickers. Oh, Lord, the hurricane has become a man. Oh, Lord, but you, uh, you use your power to heal. And you gave up your power to have us. Lord, would you just be merciful to us and help us and strengthen us. And We are waffling and we just ask, Lord, that you would just be with us. We ask this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.